You know, one thing that I think is a tremendous blessing, this church is a family, truly a family. We're not an organization, we're a living organism. And we thank the Lord that through the Holy Spirit, the blessings of Jesus Christ, that's true. And you know, yesterday at the wedding, uh, to look around and see everyone, what a delight it was just to see the TCF family present. I especially want to thank the Doe's. You know, wow, what a key they were. <laughs> you know, we cannot deny that it happened because Kwong recorded for history, photography, <laughs> just, just there and there. And then Christina, one of the beautiful bridesmaids, and Daniel with his guitar and violin, and then Zhang He running all over the place, taking care of this detail and that detail. You know, we thank you for the way the Doe family served us yesterday. Isn't this a blessed church? Thank God that we are who we are, not because anybody has made this church what it is, truly a gift of the Lord. Recently visiting with a church leader in the city, we were discussing various churches and strengths and weaknesses. This man said to me, I believe TCF is the most biblically literate church in the city. Now, whether or not that's true, it's pretty close to true. This church is a church that has this at its center. And isn't that wonderful because that's the way God wants it. Uh, wasn't it a blessing last week to hear uh, Diane Shepherd and Megan Failer and, and Charlene talk about the Sunday morning Bible school the kids have. And one thing that caught my attention was that each one of them talked about how their knowledge of God's word was growing by studying in preparation for teaching. You know, I relate to that. I first began teaching the Bible when I was 17 years old. Here's the story. Uh, in Muskogee, Oklahoma, where I grew up, in those days, which is now about three-quarter of a century ago, uh, Sunday school consisted of, first of all, there was the nursery, and then the cradle roll, and then the beginner department, which is kind of like kindergarten. Then the primary department was grades one through three, the junior department grades four through six, junior high seven through nine, seven through nine, and then 10, 11, and 12 for senior. Now, my family was a very close member, friends really, of the uh, lady who was the superintendent of the junior department. And she approached me one day, I was 17 years old, and she said, would you be willing to start teaching a class in the junior department? Well, I guess I will. And guess what? She assigned to me a class of fourth grade girls. <laughs> I don't know how many, 10 to 12 maybe. And so we embarked together studying, and we had a curriculum from Standard Publishing Company, sounds similar to what you're using today, three years through the Bible. And so for three years, I was with that same group of girls as we proceeded from Genesis 
Revelation. When Barbara and I married, I was still doing that. She jokingly said, I married Jim and his girls because we were involved with them in various activities. And I must say that no other three-year period of my entire life did I learn Bible like I did during those three years, studying and preparing to teach week by week. I thank God that when I was 17 years old, through no initiative on my part, he put me in a situation where I could be exposed to the Word of God in a very organized and deep way. I thank the Lord for that. This morning, I feel that's what God wants me to talk about, the Word of God, and how central that is to us. And we can trust this Word of God. I want to talk a little bit about my life story today because I want you to know what I'm telling you is not just something in a book, but it is fact and validated by my experience of life. As a child, I became very much interested in the sciences. You probably don't know who Dick Tracy is or was, (laughs) but Dick Tracy was a cartoon strip in the everyday newspaper, a detective and his friend Pat. And whenever they'd hit problems often they couldn't solve, then we'd see in the cartoon strip, here they went to the lab. And here were beakers, and here were test tubes, and And so on and so on. And these men in the lab were able to solve problems for these detectives. I began to think, well, chemistry then must be the answer to about everything. And so I became very interested in chemistry. I began to study chemistry. I set up my own lab out in the barn, had all the equipment, did different different tests. And in high school, studied chemistry. I learned all the valences. Today, we have computers, but back then, we didn't. It had to all be here. (laughs) Chemistry intrigued me. And I began to have questions about the Bible. I became an amateur astronomer. One year, we met uh, every Thursday night in Spalding Park and studied the heavens. We had to name all the celestial bodies we could see, and each week each student had to uh, draw a chart of the constellations and how they move week by week, and I became very much interested in astronomy. As a matter of fact, I thought as a teenager someday I was going to either be a chemist or an astronomer because those were the areas that so involved my life, and I was so intensely interested in them. One of my favorite reading materials was National Geographic. I read it faithfully. I love to read about geology. I love to read about the history of different tribes and peoples and gaining that knowledge of dinosaurs. I gave a lecture on dinosaurs. I think I was in the eighth grade. All of these things began to impact my life. But some of the things I was reading in scientific journals and studies challenge the veracity of Scripture. And I began to ask myself, how can I trust the Bible when I'm learning all of this, which in some way, according to scientists, contradicts the Bible? Is there someone to whom I can turn? And I went to the preacher, I'll not name him, 
and began to pose my questions to him. And he said, but the Bible says, and I didn't say it, but I thought, you idiot, I know what the Bible says. That's not what I'm asking. And there was no one to help me. I began to read. Finally, I met a man named Ralph Dornetti who gave me no answers but gave me directions to pursue. And I began to pursue and pursue. Fortunate in the, I went off to Bible college still wrestling with these questions. Fortunate there to have a professor, George Mark Elliott, one of the most brilliant men I have ever met. And George Mark Elliott taught a class on apologetics. I'm so thankful for that class. And he began to point directions of study, not give answers, but think this way. And here's a fact, and here's a fact, and here's a fact. And using the scientific process of probability, you know, in a lab, if you're testing and you get 80% probability, then you develop a hypothesis and begin to operate on that. And I felt scientifically I came to a probability of 90% of the veracity of Scripture as I began to explore this and explore that. And so I took a 10% leap of faith. And from that point on, this is a trustworthy Word of God. But you know, my pursuits were quite amateur. Some of you know about Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter, highly respected, total, not just agnostic, but atheist. And then of all things, one day his wife became a Christian, greatly upset him that she was following this silly superstition. And so Lee Strobel set about to prove the fallacy of Christianity and the Bible and the whole thing about the resurrection, all that baloney. But you know, as you read his story. <laughs> it's amazing how this man traveled here and met with these people, there and met with these people. And instead of disproving Christianity, the evidence began to pile up on the veracity of the scripture and the truth of what was told. In the first book he wrote then, he became a follower of Jesus. And the first book he wrote was The Case for Christ. The second one, The Case for the Resurrection. And now third one, The Case for Miracles. You know, my pursuit was quite amateur <laughs> compared to his. But his was even amateur compared to some others. Sir William Ramsey was one of the most esteemed men in all of the scientific world. He discovered helium, he discovered neon, he discovered argon, on and on and on. Huge rewards. He taught at Oxford and Cambridge and was totally an atheist, as was all of his family and all of his fellow professors. I don't know how this man did it, but at some point along the way, he became rather upset that some of his friends were claiming that the Bible is true. And so he said, well, I've got to show them they're wrong. He did an amazing thing, and I don't know how anybody could do what he did, but he went to Palestine and traveled all over Palestine. He followed all of the journeys of Paul. 
He went from place to place to place, and every place he went verified the Bible record. And he shocked his companions one day by saying, I've become a follower of Jesus Christ. I have two of his books written about the journeys of Paul, the life of Paul. You know, we could go on and on. Uh, Simon Greenleaf, who was the professor at Harvard Law School, his expertise was evidence. And he wrote a three-volume text that became standard in law schools on the fact that evidence is what we have to really look at and what's bad evidence and good evidence. And he embarked to do the same thing one day, to deliver his friends from their foolishness and test Christianity on the basis of evidence. (laughs) And like Dr. Sir William Ramsey, he came to a total different place. He became a follower of Jesus because the evidence proved it. Let me tell you, this is trustworthy. This is the word of God we can trust. We can't always trust our feelings. Michael, Steve Staub's brother, plays a saxophone. And you know, the Staub family grew up under a kind of Assembly of God influence. And Michael told Steve this, and I chatted with Michael yesterday about it. (laughs) that he said, I've been in church services and I see people all stirred up, so-called anointed, but I can do the same thing in a club with my instrument and band and we stir people the same emotion and call it anointing, (laughs) exactly the same emotion. But whether or not that's true, emotions certainly come and go and are not reliable for determining the direction of life. Nothing wrong with him. Thank God for the emotions he gives us. But we need something more stable than that. Of course, we can go too far. Some years ago, I was in a revival meeting, and the song leader was leading the song, I serve a risen Savior is in the world today. And last night, I know he is living. You have to me how I know he lives. We say, he lives within my heart. This song leader changed the words. The Bible tells me so. You know, (laughs) yes, the Bible tells me so, but what a difference between just following a book and having a living relationship with God. But that living relationship with God is validated by this truth. You know, the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, 172 verses. A little more than 50 years ago, Bill Sanders challenged a church one Sunday morning. Somebody in this church, perhaps I challenge you to memorize the 119th Psalm. Surprisingly, one woman did. (laughs) She could recite all 172 verses. I doubt there's anybody here that can do that. I sure can't. But that's a tremendous psalm because its total subject, verse after verse after verse, is the Word of God. Sometimes they're called commandments, promises, precepts, the Word of God. 
You know, the Bible contains facts to be believed, commands to be obeyed, promises to be received, and warnings to be heeded. And this, my brother and sister, is authority. Now, it is important that we recognize that our goal is not to know the Bible, but to know the author. Recently, in reading the book of Hebrews, we come to chapter 4, the Word of God, as Bill mentioned this morning. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder soul and spirit, joint from marrow. And then the last part, there's nothing that escapes the sight of him with whom we have to do. That's why it's because of the author. And this word of God is infused with the presence of the author. It is living. It is active. It is not a dead word. I'm sure you could tell some stories, I can, as to how it's been living and active in my life. Some of you have heard this before, but let me tell it again because it is such an illustration of that point. I'm not sure the year, sometime in the 1970s, it seemed that almost everything with which I was associated was falling apart. Problems in the family, the Word of Faith movement was trying to disrupt the church. We ended up at Bel Air with, in essence, three congregations in one. Five women especially were adamant and pushing the word of faith. We had others of us who said, well, let's study. We did. We spent a whole year going through the Bible studying the Holy Spirit. What's the truth about it? And then we had a third group. This is a Christian church. That'll never happen here. <laughs> so we had three congregations in one at war with one another. And I was in despair. I was in despair. So many things I was involved with, the church, family, other things, just seemed to be falling apart. I was preaching through the book of Acts. And as I was reading Acts 13, 36, David, after he fulfilled the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep slept with his fathers and underwent decay and the Lord just arrested me and clearly spoke this word allow me to use you in your generation do not be concerned about building anything lasting die be gone be forgotten he was saying Results are not your responsibility. Your responsibility is obedience. And that's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, didn't he? He said, one plants, another waters, but it is God that gives the increase. The one who plants is nothing, the one who waters is nothing, but everything is God who gives the increase. And I would lie to you if I would say I have perfectly lived by this axiom, but I've sought to live it. I have but one responsibility, 
and that is to be obedient. And what God does with my obedience is strictly up to Him. You see, the Word of God is active and alive. And we must not just read it as a book, but read the Scripture in a companionship with God and the Holy Spirit who gave it. Listen to it as the living Word of God. Proverbs exhorts us, Lean not on thine own understanding, but in all ways, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. How does he do that? Well, certainly through the leading of the Holy Spirit. But more than that, through Scripture. Again, Psalm 19, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. One way, as I lean not on my understanding, but trust in the Lord with all my heart, is to look in the Word of God and see what direction is there. Yesterday... At the wedding, Michael Staub read from Paul's writings beautiful passage of God's Word about being patient and forgiving one another and so on. You know, if every couple in marriage followed those verses, what a tremendous blessing every marriage would have. And you know, that's true with all of God's Word. If we would live by God's word, we would have the most blessed life one can ever imagine. But when we depart from it, there are consequences I don't think any of us ever really want. But we do have to live with them. Thy word is a light unto my feet. Yes, and a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. How many times have we been down and have we been discouraged? Psalm 19, verse 25. My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to thy word. Oh, such encouragement comes sometimes. You know, one of the most challenging parts of verses or passages in Scripture is in 1 John chapter 1. It's encouraging and convicting if we confess our sins. He is just and will forgive us of all of our sins. For the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Then this, if we say we have not sinned, we are liars and his word <laughs> is not in us. Thy word have I hid in my heart, Psalm 119 again, that I might not sin against God. When we absorb the word of God into our very being, intertwine it with the very fiber of who we are, it doesn't control us, but it has tremendous influence on us. Thy word have I hid in my heart. Now, the New American Standard says treasured, but that's not as good as the King James. Both the Hebrew and the Greek have the idea of something stored up, hidden deep inside. The word of God becomes 
so much a part of who I am that I cannot sin without feeling guilty and I can confess to God and I am forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all unrighteousness. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. One of the things that I'd love to do throughout my entire life is to get into an open space away from trees and city lights at nighttime and just look at the heavens. Oh my. I think I feel closer to God at that time than any other. And the vastness that's there. As an astronomer, I learned that the universe is expanding and it's exhilarating as to how rapidly it expands. Light travels 186,282 feet per second in a vacuum. <laughs> the atmosphere is not a vacuum. But where those celestial bodies are today, the light they emit may never reach the earth. God may ring down the curtain on history before then. What you and I are seeing is light that was emitted long ago when the universe was more compressed. There's now they talk about the you know the the, the explosion thing about the, the universe, but to think about that Tremendous to think about it, isn't it? And to think that there is a creator who not only designed this, but had the ability to do it. Isn't that amazing? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that it is therein. Some weeks ago, I was sitting in Woodward Park on my favorite bench, Praying the clarinet, stopping and praying and seeking to glorify God in what I was doing. Right in front of me, there was a small patch of clover. One point as I was praying and meditating, a bee caught my attention. And he went from this blossom to this blossom to this blossom to this blossom, then left. Here came another bee. This blossom, this blossom this blossom, this blossom, and left. And another bee. And one afternoon, a sequence of bees. But here was an interesting thing. No bee ever visited a blossom that a previous bee had visited. How did he know the nectar was gone? Dear God, dear God, you are amazing that you could design something like this. And I began to look at the trees and the vegetation and the nearby rose garden, which to me is special. My wife was a, a University of Oklahoma, or rather an OSU, master gardener, and she used to work there. So that's a special spot for me. These beautiful plants, dear God in heaven, how did you do this? And then this thought came to me. A sperm invades an ovum. <laughs> and about nine months later, here's a baby. <laughs> How does that happen? Oh, God, it's amazing. 
what you have designed. How can I know you and know more about you? Here it is. It's here indeed. Thank God for his word. We could go on and on and talk about this. But again, Psalm 119.72 says this. The law of thy mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Amen.